OG basketball. Didn't they play with like, people's heads? What? You're listening to Film Kids and Giant Squids. And other things that think they're deep. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Brooke. And this week, we're talking about Nosferatu and Twilight. Your classic vampire flicks. Ooh. <laughs> Why did you say ooh? It's not... <laughs> <laughs> Is it because I used flicks instead of films? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was then like, ooh, where can I add werewolves? And I'm like, chick rhymes with flick, but like, and your other werewolf chicks. <laughs> your other were chicks. I was thinking chickens. They suddenly become illegal once a month. Chickens aren't illegal. They're just, <laughs> you can't have them as pets in certain cities. Oh, sorry. They become free yeah. of ownership once a month? I would hope they're free of ownership <laughs> All month. <laughs> 127 hours with a film kid. So let's get into 127 hours with a film kid. First up this week is news about our boy Damien Chazelle. Oh, like yeah. the guy we just talked about last week. Last episode. <laughs> So he's released a new short film. It's with Apple and it's called The Stunt Double. The short was entirely shot on an iPhone and it only uses the vertical aspect ratio. Oh my god, gross. So the plot of the short film is that it's this stunt double in present day Hollywood who dives off of a skyscraper only to realize that his parachute is broken. He's kind of just plummeting to his death and imagines himself through Hollywood history. So like the same as La La Land. It's very... But instead of jazz, it's death. <laughs> Jumping yeah, it's out just, of like, his It's a plane. big homage to filmmaking because he goes through like a million different genres as a stunt double in these genres. Like he's in a silent era cool. film, an 80s movie, a spy movie, a western, and it looks good and obviously they had a budget for lighting and props and sound and editing and yada yada and that's obviously a reason why the film looks so good but it's still kind of impressive what an iphone can do similarly like if you ask any filmmaker like what they were like when they were a kid most filmmakers are going to say they got their hands on any camera they could and just filmed what they could. And that's kind of the spirit of this, is that it's saying mm-hmm. like you can create Hollywood with your iPhone. The modern day equivalent of picking up a VHS camcorder in the 80s. But like, please, if you make movies on your phone, shoot them horizontally. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, on the other hand, the vertical aspect ratio is just gimmicky. Like, it doesn't serve the film. Chazelle does a good job of keeping a lot of the movement vertical. So like, the jumping off of the building. At one point, the stuntman flips down a set of stairs, or they run through walls that are collapsing in on them. He does a good job of making it not feel constricting, but there's no reason for it, and it doesn't add anything to it and there are times when you're like man I wish I could just see the entire shot instead of just this small (laughs) sliver of the screen so next is David Lynch he is a famous director he's probably most known for Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive in lockdown he's been making content on YouTube. Mostly what he's been doing are daily weather reports. They're just somehow very wholesome while also being very unnerving at the exact same time. The same energies of like Bob Ross like just went unhinged and painted like a murder scene but then still taught you how to paint it (laughs) and like was like oh it was a happy little accident. He slipped and fell on my knife. So he used to do these weather reports in the early 2000s on his website which now doesn't exist anymore. So he's been doing them 
them since May. And each video is about a minute long, and it starts with Lynch in his office bunker. It's unclear. You can't see the windows. You can only see the light from the windows. He starts off saying good morning, and then he gives the date by month, day, year, and then followed by saying what day of the week it is, which honestly in quarantine is very helpful because you forget. Like, who knows what day it is? (laughs) David Lynch does. He then looks around him to give what the current weather is. And it's usually foggy because it's LA. And then he'll typically say that the fog will burn off and there will be blue skies and lots of golden sunshine. And then he tells us to have a great day. And that is every video. He's been doing these every single day. And there are some other constants besides just like the exact things that he says. His outfit is always the same. His hair is always the same. That's a difficult thing to have your hair be exactly the same every day. I wonder if he trims it like (laughs) so slightly. He has his cup of coffee on his desk, which most days you can see the steam rising off of it and it's just something nice about something constant every day then you know exactly what it's gonna be so i'm gonna send you the link from today's report because i need to send you what the typical one is to show you what the atypical one was oh that's cute (laughs) yeah it's like surprisingly very wholesome like it's just him looking around and telling us the weather i feel like a vast majority of his audience don't live in la so like for me at least it's like oh yeah that's the la weather today but like (laughs) for most people it's just like what oh that's weather of a place where i don't live it's also always sunny anyway so what (laughs) yeah so now i'm sending you the july 29th weather report for those at home david has a sudden new addition to the weather report wait is he just gonna ignore the jar Yeah, for those at home who haven't seen this report, David has a painted jar that he's holding. He draws attention to it, acknowledges what your questions are, like, what's with the jar? Why is it painted like that? And then moves on and does the weather and doesn't answer any of them. Is he, like, building to it? Is there going to be a reveal? He's going to unleash a jar of spiders onto himself in, like, two weeks. The jar hasn't been in any of the weather reports since this. He also has another series on this YouTube channel called What is David Working On Today? And these are even more wholesome. It's a DIY program. (laughs) We love DIY. It's just showing the audience what he's making. Whether it's a phone holder, like a tripod attachment so he could film with his iPhone. Is it film related or is it like... Here's no. my macrame that yeah. I've spent two weeks on. It's like mostly like woodwork that he's doing or like molding projects. But yeah, so he makes this phone holder a tripod attachment, but then ends the video by holding up the one that he bought saying, yeah, you can buy this and it works perfectly well, but it's just fun to make things. Wholesome content. You love to see it. One of these videos, the what is David working on today? is about the jar, where he talks about painting this jar. This was before the weather report, where he was just like, you'll see why soon, but we (laughs) don't see why. (laughs) We will. That wasn't the why. The thing is, now I need to know... But, like, I already have a person in my life who, like, has a day job and then their Twitter is dedicated to the weather. There's one of the pollsters for Politico. His name is Stephen Shepard. He tweets about polling things, but, like, every single day he tweets about the DC weather and then, like, shifts in the weather and, like, shifts in weather patterns for, like, the past however long. And, like, I'm intrigued. And every time I send a tweet by him to, like, my coworkers, 
they are they're like worried because they're like the, too much weather but <laughs> i can't i can't one at least that's like relevant to me i can't consume two different weather hobby enthusiasts <laughs> yeah that's fair but also you can consume this one because it's david lynch and it's just it's like wholesome but unnerving but my favorite of these what is david working on today is something he calls the checking stick it is a stick with like a metal tab on it to check your heart, aka your feelings, and your Aww. brain, aka your thinking on a project. Oh my god. So like he like you point it at a project that you're working on in the video he points it at a painting and he puts it on his heart and he goes, Yeah, close but no cigar and then he puts it on his head and goes, I might need to destroy it to get it to where I want. And then he kind of turns to the viewer and goes, But you don't need to make this because you have intuition. Uh- do we? That's a bold assumption of his viewers. <laughs> that is what David Lynch is doing in quarantine, and that is 127 hours of the film, kid. Wait, Brooke, I also have news. But Wait, not really? Film news. <laughs> so, just in time for our Twilight episode, Midnight Sun just came out, and we will be doing a bonus episode on it, because it is Twilight from Edward's perspective, so of course we need to talk about it. Yeah. And to be fair, maybe it will eventually be a movie. Plot-wise, it, it would be the same movie as Twilight. I read but. an interview where like someone talked to Catherine Hardwick, who directed the first Twilight, being like, would you want to do this movie? And she was just like, obviously yes, Like, who wouldn't want to get back in that mindset? And I was like, I feel you. <laughs> I want to get back in my middle school mindset of being obsessed with Twilight again. Anyway. That is how I will get through my next 127 hours the next time I have to attend a party, which is in theory never again. You're just going to think about Twilight? Honestly, good advice. <laughs> like, we talked about other content, but like that's also... <laughs> Once they were like, we're releasing another book, my thoughts have only been Twilight, and then TikTok has picked up on that, and I've only gotten Twilight content. Nosferatu. My tweet is, a happy-go-lucky man loses his goth wife to the goth next-door neighbor he sold the house to. (laughs) Mine is, a creepy take on coronavirus. A failure to read and provide information to his residents causes a plague to run rampant. You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. Hunter literally was like, this pamphlet, not gonna read it. Too scary. Where it literally tells you how to kill a vampire. Spoiler alert. For 30 minutes from now. (laughs) Anyway, Nosferatu, also known as Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, was released on March 4th, 1922. It was directed by F.W. Murnau. To talk about this movie, we're gonna need to talk about German expressionism. You kind of need to know the context of how it came to be. So after Germany lost World War I and they were forced to pay those crippling reparations, a couple things happened. First, the country isolated itself and they stopped importing any foreign films. This is especially important because this is right around when Hollywood, the Hollywood system, was really beginning to take shape. And then second, the country's debt also led to inflation, which meant that people were trying to spend their money immediately because it was losing value by sitting in their banks. Which, like, I know inflation is bad, but also, like, what a concept. (laughs) I know. That you're just like, I need to go to the movies right now. So it was because of this the German government supported German film industry because the people 
kind of were demanding it. German expressionism began as a reaction to realism. Wait, but also imagine just like the people are like, we demand a movie and the government's like, here's the movie you're getting. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the government funded movies, as far as they go, German expressionism is not a bad way. So the first real German expressionist film was The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which was released in 1920. And there's a couple key things that all German expressionism like has, the style of it. First is extreme lighting, so those shadows, that heavy contrast. They also use theatrical costumes, and they dramatically stage shots that would often be distorted whether through special effects or just a weird camera angle. German expressionism also encouraged over-the-top dramatics for actors, which is why you'll see the heavy use of pantomime and, like, over-dramatics even more than you would see in a typical silent film. It's like Jasper was meant to be in this movie, and he's just the embodiment of all of it, but in Twilight. Or, like, when Edward is just, like, horribly disgusted in that bio lab. (laughs) Or just staring at Bella in literally any yeah. scene. <laughs> German expressionism was popular in the 1920s, but then as more and more filmmakers fled the increasingly Nazi Germany for Hollywood, the movement died with them. Once these filmmakers reached America, they would influence Hollywood, particularly in genres of horror and film noir. So Nosferatu is a quintessential German expressionism film. It was released fairly early in the movement. As I've said, it was released in 1922 and the movement kind of started pretty much 1920. It is one of the first adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula and is the only remaining. There was one film that was earlier, but it's been lost. But the filmmakers, they didn't actually get the rights to Bram Stoker's Dracula. The Widow refused. So they changed the names of the characters as well as the location. Um, They were still sued and lost. (laughs) (laughs) and all copies of the film were ordered to be destroyed but obviously that didn't happen because we are still watching this movie today stoker's widow didn't make any money she never got money from the lawsuit because the production company was bankrupt as was common (laughs) in late 1920s germany so in when the film begins there isn't a lot that you could be like, ah, yes, that's German expressionism, but this immediately shifts once Hutter reaches Count Orlok's castle. And this is done on purpose to emphasize the otherworldliness of Orlok's domain, but we'll get to that. So kind of the opening first, I just, the soundtrack, which obviously was added many, many years later once sound could be added to film, is great. Every movie should use a good organ opening. So we see Hutter and his young wife, Ellen. They live in Wiesburg, maybe? And we get this fairly normal opening scene. So Hutter then heads to work, and he's approached by a man on the street that says, Do not hurry, my young friend. No man can escape his destiny. Which, fucked up. Don't approach a man and tell him that on the street. And also the absolutely complete opposite take from Twilight. (laughs) Whereas on here, he's like, your destiny is set. Not your destiny is set until you change your mind. And then you get a new one. Nock, who's the real estate agent, is creepy as hell. He is the true villain of the story. And he has absolutely wild eyebrows. He tells Hedder of Count Orlok who lives in Transylvania, who wants to buy a deserted house in town, as opposed to the filled houses. Like, I don't know why we had to specify deserted. (laughs) I want to buy a house with people living in it. I just, like, one day they're going to be shocked that I now suddenly own their house. (laughs) 
give them the plague. He tells him his lordship is going to buy a house and it's going to earn a lot of money. It will take a bit of effort and perhaps a bit of blood. Which is like, all right, dude, we get it. It's bad news. Hutter leaves to go to the land of ghosts. He arrives at an inn where he immediately throws his bag on the ground and then a man picks it up and then polishes his seat for him and then is really rude to the server and is just like, I have to go to Count Orlok's castle now, but then doesn't leave until the next morning. So you didn't need to like demand your meal. Hey, calm down. If you don't have time, don't go to a restaurant. Yeah. If you're like, I have 30 minutes, like literally fast food exists. I mean, like probably not at this point in time, but like, <laughs> yeah, there's... I'm sure there was a market. Are you really in a rush? Also, I like that werewolves also exist here. <laughs> Cause like, that's why he didn't leave. <laughs> But, like, they don't, because they all laugh. The animals they show- What when... were the pans to the wolf? <laughs> was that a wolf? What animal was that? I just said, are you team Nosferatu or team striped dog? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm unsure. So, Hutter goes to bed at the inn. He first reads a book that sounds fascinating. A vampire's terrible ghost magic and the seven deadly sins. Sign me up. I want to read it. But, as Hutter does many, many times, he just dismisses it and goes to sleep. <laughs> He then spends all day traveling, trying to get to Orlok's castle. The people driving his carriage like won't go any further because it is creepy on the other side of the pass, so he has to go the <laughs> final way on foot. Hutter laughs at them. Here is really when we shift into true German expressionism. So immediately Orlok's carriage comes like careening down the hill. So this shot is special effects. We wouldn't classify it today as special effects because it's a hundred years later, but... <laughs> It's used like stop motion to make the carriage seem faster than it actually was traveling. Then Hutter gets into the spooky carriage and the next shot is distorted. It's negative, which again adds to this like otherworldliness of Orlok's domain. So he arrives at the castle and meets Orlok. Who is standing outside, right? And like it's the day, right? No, it's night. Okay. I guess because yeah. it was like negative then. It see, I was like, this is daytime and he's not alive. And I was like, is it only direct sunlight? Is it because he's wearing a hat? They they filmed it in the daytime because obviously the cameras back then couldn't film in night. They didn't have powerful yeah. lights. You can tell the color they apply to the film, that like blue tint is supposed to signify night. So he arrives, he meets Orlok, who appears from the shadows and is just upset that Hutter is late, which like honestly, as a host, I would be too if I had been waiting around all day for someone and they didn't show up. And like prepared food. Like he doesn't even eat food. Like that was just for Hutter. Yeah, he gives him dinner and doesn't eat anything, just watches him, much like Edward in Twilight. (laughs) He says, you've hurt yourself. The precious blood, also much like Edward in Twilight. (laughs) Yeah, it's really just a love story between Orlok and Hunter, and Ellen just gets in the way. Orlok has a really great clock of a skeleton man, and it strikes midnight, and then Hutter nicks himself with the knife, and Orlok is alarmed because it's precious blood. <laughs> Hutter backs away slowly and falls into the chair, like, by the fire, and Orlok basically just asks Hutter to spend the night with him, and conveniently, the next thing we see is the next morning, and Hutter has a hickey. So, love story? I think so. He, uh, he So he stands up in the morning and looks at his neck in the mirror and he sees that the Count has left out food for him. And again, proving to be such a good host. He just wants to move into a new house. He's like trying to treat them nicely. So like, he'll be the one that they picks. Like, it's honestly just considerate. Hutter leaves the castle and writes a letter to his wife about those damn mosquitoes. 
at first I was like, do vampires not exist in this universe? And like, Nosferatu is the first one, and that's why he doesn't know. But like, no, they all clearly know what vampires are later on. In theory, they don't really, because they're like, oh, look at this Venus flytrap. It's like a vampire. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like, Nosferatu isn't, it's like a species. Not, but yeah, still enough that yeah, I feel like even if I had two bites right next to each other on my neck, I'd be like, "This is a vampire bit me," and everyone would be like, "You're insane," <laughs> and I'd be like, "I know what I know." <laughs> so yeah, he comes back to the castle. It's night again, and the count sees Hutter's wife from a picture that fell out of his bag. The count was also very nearsighted or farsighted. He has to hold it one inch from his face. He then compliments Ellen's neck. And, like, the good thing about this movie is you can't fault it for being, hey, like, that's a very basic vampire trope because this was, like, the first vampire movie. So it's not a trope. I mean, it also, like, created trope. Like, I don't know. Biting people on the neck, I know, was, like, already a thing. But, like, they at least created the trope of, like, dying in sunlight or something happening in sunlight. (laughs) Looking at you, Twilight. Something (laughs) happens. There is nothing in folklore that says that vampires did not sparkle in the sun. There's nothing in it that says that, but there's also nothing in it that says that they can't be in the sun, period. Both are equally plausible. So Orlok buys the house, and Hutter doesn't seem that happy, which upsets Orlok, because he's just trying to be a good neighbor. Again, Hutter then goes and reads from his book again, and realizes, hey, maybe this isn't fiction. (laughs) Which is, like, a really late time to come to this conclusion, sir. You've already been bit and let him own the house next to you and your wife. So, again, that night, Orlok wakes up, and this next sequence in the film is quintessential German expressionism. There's heavy shadows, the contrast, there's over-the-top dramatics, like, this entire sequence is what people study. So Hutter hides behind the door, we see Nosferatu in the distance, and then the door opens and Hutter is just breathing so heavily. Orlok walks into the door, there's lighting, shadows, Hutter tries to hide under the covers, and then we cut back to his wife. So cross-cutting, which is the use of like telling two stories at the same time and cutting back between them to show that they're happening at the same time, It was a fairly common technique in early filmmaking, but not, like, used in every single film. So this isn't groundbreaking editing techniques, but it is still really well done, and it increases the tension in both scenes. So yeah, Ellen is sleepwalking, and she sleepwalks onto the ledge, and then we cut back to her. As both her and Bella need to be watched in their sleep, except (laughs) Bella doesn't need to for any sort of life-saving reason. It's just because Edward likes it. Yeah. Yeah, so we cut back to Hutter, the shadows of Orlok peer over him, Ellen calls out, and Nosferatu withdraws, and as he leaves the room, he barely fits under the doorframe, and if I had a whole castle that was mine, I would make sure I didn't have to duck in any door room. Like, that would be the first thing I did when I moved in. So the next day, Hutter explores the castle and finds Orlok's coffin. He sees Orlok through the lid. And then decides to rip the lid off, revealing his whole body. Like, you saw who it was, you could, you didn't need to see the whole body, you're just more scared To now. be fair, it, like, kind of looked like a wooden doll of Abraham Lincoln. So, like, understand <laughs> the need to look at the whole body and be like, ah, okay, my new neighbor. He then runs to his room in panic, and out of his window, he sees Orlok leaving in his coffin pyramid. Again, making use of stop motion to create this magical, like, 
self-moving coffin. Hatter then rips up the sheets to climb out of the window and falls five feet, so obviously is incapacitated. Like, this is the <laughs> overdramatics I was talking about. <laughs> he wakes up in a hospital bed and just shouts, Coffins! <laughs> then passes back out. Brooke, what would you have done if I did that? So for context, <laughs> me and Brooke used to share a room, and I would wake up in the middle of the night and terrorize Brooke. <laughs> There's two things that, like, really would freak me out. One is you would, like, aggressively sit up and just stare at me, and I'd be like, oh no, like, was I making noise? Or you, like, would throw things off of your bed. (laughs) But yeah, if you woke up, shouted coffins, and then went back to bed, if it was, like, early on when I wasn't used to it, I'd been like, I'm moving. I'm leaving immediately. I cannot be in this room with this demon creature. When my mom has nightmares, she'll, like, start yelling, but her yell is, like, a ghostly kind of, like, falsetto, but, like, it starts out really quiet and then gets louder, so it's like, oh, 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 (laughs) (laughs) like, it keeps getting louder. When I used to serve tables, I would get a lot of frequent serving nightmares, like stress dreams, and there was definitely a time- That I woke up standing in the middle of my room and genuinely was like, oh, I have to get table 23, their ranch, and went downstairs to our kitchen and opened the fridge to get the ranch before I realized <laughs> what I was doing. What a horrifying thing to be in your hand at like 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so on the dock, the sailors open one of the coffins to see all these rats in the dirt. Then we get the professor's meat-eating plant lesson. I feel like... At least from Hutter's perspective, there were also more red flags in that count, whatever his name is, was only shipping like five containers of dirt with him. (laughs) That was what he was moving with into his new house. Well, I mean, at that point, Hutter knows he's that. And warned no one. He fell out of a window five feet and wasn't- he shouted coffins! What more do you want from him? (laughs) A lot. (laughs) I need a lot more context. Nock is committed to the psych ward. Then we get treated to a bunch of these vicious eating scenes. We see the Venus flytrap. We see the polyp. We see the spiders. I think every movie needs to give a warning that's just like spiders before they show you (laughs) any spiders. Yeah. So then Ellen goes to the beach, cementing her goth status. She goes to her cemetery beach. (laughs) And she is given Hutter's letter where he's still talking about his mosquito bites. And is also not like, I miss you. It's like, don't let it upset you that I'm still not here. Hutter recovers from his dramatic fall and thanks the nurse. And then Nock steals the newspaper and learns of the plague killing many young men. On Orlok's ship, one of the sailors is delirious. As he's left alone, Orlok appears and disappears. Again, this is a pretty good use of special effects, especially for this time. And another example of a distorted shot. So all of the crew die. The first mate goes downstairs with an axe while the captain's just like, yeah, sure, man, go for it. He hacks open a coffin to find more rats. So Orlok rises from his coffin. Again, a great shot. Very much German expressionism here. The first mate panics and just jumps off the boat. And the captain doesn't even, like, attempt to save him. Just goes, cool, he's dead. Gotta tie myself to the ship. (laughs) And Orlok creeps around the boat. And now the ship is Orlok's. Once again, Ellen is sleepwalking and she is being called to. Orlok's boat docks and Nock proves again to be the creepiest thing in this movie as he senses it. And Orlok comes up from the ship's hold, 
Nock attacks and kills the warden and escapes the psych ward. So he then carries his coffin through town, as one does. And Hutter somehow made really good time despite being incapacitated. He makes it home to Ellen pretty much at the same time as Orlok moves in. People investigate the ship and they find no living soul <laughs> on board. They then take the dead captain off and they read the ship's log. Which first they read, an unknown passenger is below deck. Which, like, that would have been red flag number one for me. I would have been like, excuse me, there's what now? No, send this man back to where he came from. I want no part of it. But they're more alarmed by, like, the plague threat. (laughs) And immediately, social distance. Immediately. They self-isolate. And the town crier gives the announcement that all sick people should stay inside and not go to the hospital. They're responding. But if they had just read the book earlier, because Hut didn't Hutter tell Ellen not to read it because it like freaked him out. He was, he, if he had advised reading it, we could have figured it out sooner. <laughs> You're, okay, that's yeah, fair. <laughs> the plague was already there. They do have a good response, though. Yeah, like these people don't have access to this book; they just know it's a plague. So Ellen reads that's the fair. book, which really Hutter stole from that inn. Like just blatantly was like, "What's this? This is mine now." <laughs> So more people die from the plague, and there's this really great point of view shot, which is something pretty like pretty new for filmmaking at this time, where Allie is standing at the window and she looks out and sees these rows, like these countless coffins being brought down the street, which is like emphasizing the count people are taken by the plague, aka by Nosferatu. Which is also funny, because in a not, not that people are dying. Nosferatu. But in a direct contrast to Twilight, since Edward and Esme were turned into vampires to avoid dying of the plague, this is a plague caused by vampires, whereas Twilight is a plague that caused vampires. (laughs) This is true. This is true. Conveniently, Ellen then reads the page of how she can kill a Nosferatu. Then we have the mob scene chasing after Nock and they're throwing things at him while he sits on the roof and he runs away and hides in fields and the mob's destroying a scarecrow. This sequence is also a pretty distorted shot because they're not using the typical frame rate. Filmmaking at the time didn't have the standard frame rate as we have today so it wasn't uncommon that they would use different frame rates per sequences but the frame rate they do use here like, adds to the frenzied nature of the mob. So then Ellen sees Orlock from her window, and the shot of Orlock also in his window is a prime German expressionism, as Orlock himself is this, this distortion to the otherwise balanced shot. It's like a perfectly balanced art, like, window with, like, a kind of arch made out of the window panes, and Orlock is standing in the middle disrupting it. Ellen is called to Orlock, and then Orlock comes to her, and the shadows up the stairs is one, an iconic shot and very referenced and replicated. But again, this is quintessential German expressionism. The exact note I put in my notes was German express yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and so Ellen clutches her chest and slowly falls onto the bed and the shadow of Orlok looms over her. Ellen gives her blood and therefore Orlok is distracted because she's a good intentioned maiden. And, um... <laughs> He's still there at dawn and therefore dies. Nock tries to climb out of his prison cell trying to get to his master, but the morning light kills Orlok. Ellen survives just long enough to reunite with Hutter before dying as well, and that is the end of the movie. Tragic. Do you want to know some facts about the movie? Hell yeah. The director, Murnau, left Germany four years later to move to Hollywood, where he went on and made more films. 
Of the 21 films he directed in his career, eight of them are entirely lost. Murnau died in 1941 at the age of 42. He was in a car that got into an accident and hit a pole. He was the only one injured in the accident and died the next day due to head trauma. A couple oh. interesting facts about his death. I would say fun, but not everyone is as morbid <coughs> as I am. So he had seen a fortune teller not too long before his accident because he was planning a trip to go visit his mom in Germany. And the fortune teller told him that he would arrive when he wanted to, like on the date, but it would be in a different manner than he expected. And this came true. Oh my God. Yeah. And this <laughs> came true as the day he was supposed to arrive in Germany was the day his coffin arrived in Germany. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Another fact about his death is that the sailors refused to sail with his coffin. They were obviously afraid because of Nosferatu. So. I mean, like, the people in Nosferatu were, quote, unaware of the creepy load. So, like, would make sense but, like, that they could also have creepy loads. They all loads. died. <laughs> That too! (laughs) So it took a lot to get his coffin on the ship. And then finally, Greta Garbo, a famous, like, well-regarded actress, after his death, commissioned and kept Murnau's death mask on her desk. I think- Well, it is a death mask. A death mask is, like, a mask of someone's death. Like, not of their death, but, like, mask they make of your face after you've died. Ah! Yeah. (laughs) Don't do that to me. You can make, like, a collage of me. That's as far as you can go. You know what you can do now is you can preserve tattoos. They'll cut off the skin and, like, preserve You can preserve it. my tattoos. And, like, That's frame it. it. I'm not framing your skin. You don't have to frame it. Just keep them somewhere. I'm not keeping your skin. <laughs> like, this is my mom. She wants us, when, when she dies, she wants to be turned into jewelry so that we can wear her. And I'm like, mom. Like, I'm not- Like, what parts of her? She, like, she wants to be cremated and then have her ashes be turned into jewelry, which, like, is a thing. But I was like, but mom, I'm not wearing you. Uh. Like, I'm not doing it. Sorry. <laughs> and then she was like, well, then just put me on your mantle. And I'm like, first, who do you think I am? Gonna have a mantle? <laughs> and second, no. Equally, like, <laughs> imagine losing your necklace somewhere public and then someone, like, the person, who whoever's, like, in charge of that public place just being like, sorry, like, we looked, we can't find it. Like, is it replaceable? And you're like, no, it's my mom. In 2015, Renault's grave was actually broken into. The remains disturbed and his skull was removed. Which means someone out there has his skull. Oh my god, I hope it's I hope it's being used as jewelry. I hope it's not. I don't even know what I want <laughs> it to be used for, but I just <laughs> just oh, everything about it. Like I can, you broke into a grave and stole a skull, and so recently. Yeah, because there was like candle like wax residue on the grave. They were like maybe it was like ceremonial. They talked about sealing his graves so that it wouldn't happen again. Are they gonna wait to put the skull back in? <laughs> Well, they didn't find him. The person, they didn't find the skull. They didn't find who stole it. Give it till like, 2025. It'll turn up. Is that your official prediction? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, that is Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. I was trying to do some research to look up, like, the accuracy of vampires in both But there's just so much folklore around vampires and so many, like, specific details of vampires were created in media, not folklore. So it was hard to really say, but I can give the background as to where I think both are coming from, which could possibly be very inaccurate. So a lot of specific attributes like fangs or, like, something weird happening in the sun 
came from more like 19th century fiction. So like Dracula or like Varney the Vampire. Nosferatu was the first one where something bad, aka dying, happens in sunlight. But the overall vampiric trait is some, by definition, some sort of demon or spirit that consumes human flesh or blood. And that has been a long or a lot longer. Probably one of the earliest ones is more in Jewish culture with Lilith, who is popularized in like many Netflix shows in like 2019, I want to say, with Sabrina. Lilith was Adam of Adam and Eve's first wife who was banished for refusing to be submissive to him. Regardless, she was considered to drink the blood of babies and was considered to be the first vampire or first person with vampiric tendencies. In Greco-Roman mythology, Lilith also translates to Lamia, who in Greek mythology started eating children after her own were destroyed by Hera for sleeping with Zeus. But Lamia was then a succubus of sorts, also seducing men to kill them, which has seductive traits of Twilight, of vampires being really attractive so they can like get their prey easier, which I feel like vampires are either like super hot or like horrendous. Yeah, like in Nosferatu. No <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, that vampire is an average dude. In European and medieval folklore is more where Nosferatu seems to originate. They're based on 12th century beings called revenants, which are animated corpses that rise from their grave. French philosopher Voltaire wrote that they are, quote, Corpses who went out of their graves at night to suck the blood of the living, either their throats or their stomachs, after which they are returned to the cemeteries. In the 18th century, there was a actual, quote, vampire controversy, which fed a lot of descriptions, which scholars predict were more people coming out of their graves and biting due to premature burials and rabies, which the fact that it happened enough to be considered a vampire controversy is astounding. But- That's like why Nosferatu needs to carry around his soil because that's the soil that he died in and that's where he gets his, like, vampire life. He needs to, like, sleep in his, quote, goddamn soil in where he died. Greek culture is also what brought up more of the Christian elements of vampirism, vampirism, whatever word I wrote I don't think is correct, (laughs) Uh, which means that, like, you could be a vampire from being excommunicated or being sacrilegious on a religious day, etc. This is also where the idea came from that killing a vampire, you need to burn their body and scatter the ashes, which in Twilight to kill a vampire, you need to rip apart the limbs and burn them, but it's still burned body parts in different places. Except in Twilight, it was if you didn't rip it apart, or if you didn't burn the ripped apart pieces, they would form back together. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Okay, Twilight. My tweet is Neighborhood Creep uses 100 plus years of experience to gaslight Fork's newest resident. (laughs) Mine is, a game of baseball puts a girl's life in danger and further cements a borderline abusive relationship, proving once again that the only good sport is basketball. (laughs) It would have been so different if they had played basketball. It would have been inside. They wouldn't have been able to hear. It would have been just, just play basketball and no one gets hurt. Although, in OG basketball, didn't they play with, like, people's heads? What? How would they bounce? I don't think they'd bounce. It was like just throwing heads. Hold on. I need to fact check myself before <laughs> That's I keep arguably not basketball. <laughs> was the ball made with flesh or was it just like actual people's Okay. Heads? 
It's not basketball at all, but my it's like, it's similar <laughs> to basketball in senses. So two teams played against each other. The number of players varied between two and six players per teams. Sometimes an additional person is seen in the illustration who is believed to be a referee. The ball was put in motion by action of the right hip, the right elbow, and the right knee, and was not permitted to touch the ground. So it was like hacky sack. But like this was a head? Well, they used a rubber ball almost always, but the head came in after the game. The head was like the trophy. That's just as bad! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. So they would. So it's like hacky sack, and they're trying to get it through a ring on the other end. So instead of like a basket. Imagine if at the end of the baseball game, the colon just came out and was like, "Here's our head." We <laughs> remember how when we said we were vegetarians, we still kill people. We just don't eat them. Because it, it's a sacrificial and religious event. Maya believed that it was necessary to play the game for their own survival. So it just sounds like everyone was sacrificed. But at least there's a referee. <laughs> at least it's fair. Anyway, Twilight. Introduction. Bella immediately starts by saying that she is seemingly fine dying in the place of someone that she loves. Her dad is the chief of police, which now I am putting this movie into another secret police propaganda that I understand why your dad is the chief of police, because crime is an underlying tone of the plot. We as the audience want to know details that like an average person wouldn't just get, but like so many lovable dads are the chief of police. And it was propaganda. Yeah. I digress. They have an extremely awkward relationship, as I don't think she spent any real time with him in probably years. Which, like, they never explain that. They don't explain, like, why she stopped seeing her dad. Because also it didn't seem like they had a bad marriage, and, like, she didn't want to do the things that he wanted to do, but he didn't want to not continue doing the things that he liked. They also introduced the Blacks, Billy and Jacob, and Charlie pretends that he's embarrassed by his daughter coming home, so also a good, nice, toxic, masculine cop. <laughs> I will say, Charlie and Billy, like, fake fighting in the background is so pure. They have a very pure friendship, also in the way where it definitely look like looks like Edward abused her and pushed her out a window, and the dad didn't say anything and let them continue dating. Billy was like, ah, I am going to pay my son <laughs> to tell <laughs> that they should break up yeah even unrelated to wolves she doesn't know which pedal is the clutch (laughs) like when she gets in the truck jacob's like oh you gotta like whatever punch the i says something about the clutch and she goes oh this pedal here excuse me you shouldn't have a stick shift if you don't know which one's the clutch when i first started to learn how to drive i was like oh there's two pedals in the car so i put both feet on both pedals and my dad (laughs) was like please don't do that I, my dad taught us to drive stick, which was bad times. Like, he specifically bought, when he was, like, buying a new car, he bought a stick shift just so he could teach us how to drive. Oh my god. And I genuinely <laughs> could not drive very, very far in a stick. My dad had a CDL license, and to get your CDL license, you need to parallel park a bus. So, like, when I couldn't parallel park, he'd always be like, I can parallel park a bus, and you can't even parallel park this car. And then I went to a focus group of truck drivers, and they're like, yeah, we had to parallel park for our license, but, like, do you think I've ever parallel parked again? Like, no, I just pull into a bunch of spots. And then in the back room in front of my client and boss was like, yeah, fuck you, dad! They don't even parallel park a truck! And then I was like, oh my god, I'm at work. (laughs) In Texas... Your parents can teach you. Like, you don't have to do driver's ed. You can do driver's ed in a box. We don't have to do driver's ed. And I literally learned how to parallel park the day of my driver's test. So my mom just, like, grabbed, like, a single cone that she found, 
and then also stood. And, like, the cone that she found was, like, four inches tall, so I really couldn't see it. So all you could see is your mom, who you could either hit or not hit. Yeah. (laughs) She was just like, you're too far from me. I was like, I don't want to hit you. Like, what? (laughs) Next scene is the first day of school. Eric immediately welcomes her, which I find weird that in a bunch of films that, like, I don't know if this is how small towns are, and I just went to a suburban public school, but, like, every movie has, like, this big meet and greet with the new kid, and I'm like, schools are not like that. But Bella's immediately welcomed into this friend group. Eric... The welcoming committee guy, Mike, Jessica, who is apparently Anna Kendrick, which I forgot, and Hannah, who is apparently Susie Crabgrass, oh, wow. which sorry, I also sorry. forgot. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. And someone named Tyler, who I don't remember from the books at all, but he literally only like plays two parts in this whole movie, and it is hitting Bella with the car, and then also just going up and kissing her on the cheek in the middle of lunch for, like, absolutely no reason other than that he's like, haha, you're the new person. And it is very creepy. Tyler is definitely one of the ones who asks her prom. In the book? In the book. The Cullens then walk into the lunchroom, a sibling group of five that is weirdly incestuous, and Edward is just the fifth wheel always, apparently, with your two couple siblings. Which also, like, in theory... Just agreeing to be single for life until someone accidentally becomes a vampire. Then it's like, okay, yeah. guess you're dating my son. I feel like wasn't Rosalie, was she She was made after Edward, right? I think Edward, I think they all were. I think Edward was first. Yeah, yeah. so I think Rosalie was like, supposed, like, Carlisle was like, ah, yes, that'll be for Edward. It's like... But Edward is like, no, I don't. So it's like not even like waiting for a vampire. So is it just that like the other vampires decided decided to start dating just yeah. independently of Edward? Because they also all drive to school together independently of Edward. Edward's just a loner. Like even his siblings are like, no, fuck off, Edward. You're annoying. <laughs> if my sibling could read my thoughts, I too would not want to hang out with you. That's fair. I mean, I guess I equally wouldn't want my sibling to know my future or be able to control my emotions. But like, yes, I'm fine with them true. being exceptionally pretty or strong. Rosalie just really gets the short edge. She has nothing. <laughs> it's like vampires are are all already super hot, but like you can maybe be slightly hotter. The friends then describe Dr. Cullen as a quote foster dad matchmaker, which also implies that what they're thinking is that they just like get a new foster kid purely to date one of the other children. Yeah. Which is hilarious. And just don't care about they're like Edward is fine. Also just like I can't imagine being like, ah, yes, that's the family that adopts kids so that can have relationships with each other. Like, what? <laughs> that's not a normal And everyone's thing. just okay with it. They're like, they're just weird. It's fine. In the next scene, Ella goes to probably the only class of the whole movie, which is bio, and Edward literally gags when she walks in. It is and the is both- funniest thing. <laughs> He is very bad at hiding the fact that he is literally clutching his face not to smell Bella and just intently staring at her. Like, straight up when she sits down, he, like, turns his head, stares at her. Rob Pattinson, like, he's so good at being so disgusted. My note is just like, honestly, maybe he's just channeling how disgusted he is at this movie he's found himself in. I love that both of them hate these movies. It just, like... Same. (laughs) At school the next day, Bella decides that she's gonna wait for the Cullens to get to school to confront Edward, but he doesn't show up for a few days. Emmett rides into school, standing up through the sunroof of the car. A total job. There is then a quickly glossed over fact that there are quote unquote animal attacks, which is thrown around throughout the movie, but that's the only time that I'm going to mention it until it becomes relevant. Next scene, Bella slips getting into the car. 
to place her as a character that is a dainty and uncoordinated flower to later validate what happens of she is clumsy so this horribly tragic accident can happen to her and no one thinks twice. But arriving at school, the students all put their coats on a coat rack, which isn't relevant. It's just insane to me that a classroom would have a <laughs> coat rack. And Edward yeah. is finally back for Bella to confront. Before she even gets the chance, he introduces himself with an extremely forced hello and then continues to stare at her, rightly so, throwing Bella off. Edward, the smug asshole that he is, double checks all of her correct bio answers for their lab and then asks her about the weather as if he didn't have a hundred years to learn how to talk to girls about anything. Bella calls him out on it, tells him that cold things are gross, which, sick burn. (laughs) And then sarcastically double checks all of his work when he also answers questions. First, they're winning a golden onion. The teacher's like, yeah, whoever finishes first gets this golden onion. Like, I very what? much glanced over that, but remembered her holding it in the hallway as they were speaking. And she like, kind of like, she holds it in like several scenes. And I'm like, what are you? <laughs> She's putting it into her backpack, like right before she gets hit by the truck. I vaguely want to reread Twilight just to like see if Edward was actually this horrifying or if the movie just dramatized it. <laughs> Part of the problem is that in the books, we're seeing it through Bella's romanticized perspective. Like, she doesn't find him creepy at all in the movie, but, like, us as the audience. <laughs> we're seeing we it objectively. Her. Yeah. In which case, <laughs> I can't wait for the creepy-ass Edward perspective book. I cannot wait. It's gonna be so fucking wild. In the next scene, Edward actually talks to her in the hallway. Which, having a reputation of talking to no one at the school, I feel like it should be alarming, and Bella does not question it at all. Because his eyes literally change color, Bella asks him if he has co- if he got contacts. Instead of lying and saying yes, he stammers and is like, it's the fluorescent lighting, and runs away. Which also, you, would, you have a hundred years of experience being- A hundred and seventeen years of experience being a person. Like- make up better lies like this has to come up in your life at least occasionally he doesn't get close enough for people to see his eyes no one's looked at him in a hundred years next scene edward continues to stare at bella like a murderer just from a new location across the parking lot and she still has the golden onion and she has the golden onion when he sees tyler's car slide over the ice he runs over literally dents the car saving her bella does not say thank you and jasper looks pained which a maybe it's just that german expressionism dramatic acting but i would love to see whatever the audition is because he arguably has zero lines in this movie whatsoever and all he does is look pained <laughs> so that would have just been what the audition yeah, is yeah no he doesn't say anything also but just like imagine being him and having to feel everyone's emotions and be in high school and have a thirst for blood worst nightmare <laughs> where everyone also has their periods oh yeah that too do they ever address period blood in nope Twilight? i don't think so Theoretically, at least once a month, Edward would be like, this is too much that I cannot handle it. I I mean, especially, like, Jasper, who's, like, a new vampire who doesn't have control around blood. Like, you would think he would just, high school, no. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, let me put you with all of these, like, relatively bloody people with uteruses. Yeah, and also, like, they- do stuff in gym. I feel like everyone gets a bloody knee in gym. And like, I don't know. There was a lot of blood in my high school, I feel like. A lot of opportunity for blood. Maybe they like thought he was strong enough for height. Like maybe he didn't at first. 
Oh, like, this is his first high school. But also, I feel like if I could feel everyone's emotions, I'd literally refuse to go to high school. Bella sees Dr. Colin for her injuries, and in Edward is a horrible boyfriend, at least explicitly point one, he tries to gaslight her, saying that he was standing next to her the whole time yeah. when he saved her head that it's she then hit so she can't remember. <laughs> gaslighting it's just like what are you talking about bella i was standing right next to you like no like you just have a he- gaslighting Fuck and off. also just be like i don't know what came over me maybe like an adrenaline rush which would be easy he does say that later like in theory weeks later <laughs> yeah he was probably like he went home was, he probably like went home and was like fuck she's not gonna buy that no one would buy that goddamn idiot <laughs> i can't wait for this edward perspective book I hope it's just him realizing how bad he is at lying the entire time. He specifically turns to her and says, No one is going to believe you. Can't you just thank me and get over it? Next scene, Bella thinks that she has a dream that Edward is watching her in her room, which is actually just him watching her in her room. Perspective of what Bella would then be seeing makes me think of the Robert Pattinson's photo shoot, but the one where he's just like looming over. There was one that was like, (laughs) perspective, you're a bowl of pasta in the microwave that I'm about to eat. (laughs) <laughs> that's just what I'm imagining the perspective that Bella is getting. Yeah. At school the next day, Mike makes a very lame attempt to ask her to prom. Like, just asks her, doesn't even do anything, and this movie has no goddamn promposals. Were promposals a thing yet when this movie came out? I just feel like they weren't part of, like, the zeitgeist yet. Oh. A history of promposals. Originally, when the tradition started getting attention in 2001, it was called a prom proposal. It took the world some time before they figured out what would become the new famous abbreviation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, in 2001, Mike had plenty of time before 2008 when this movie came out to think of one. But, like, nobody actually knows Bella, so they can't do anything specific to her. But, like, everyone loves, like, I don't know, like, cakes as props. Do you think Bella likes cakes? Arguably, she didn't eat anything in the entire movie. Oh no, she has a salad and strudel. They could have gotten her a salad and <laughs> prom and some cucumbers. You do a salad, but with the A-L in parentheses, was just sad. If you don't go to prom with me. Eh? Aww. See? Nailed it. <laughs> there you go. You should be Mike. <laughs> Bella then says that she's going to Jacksonville that weekend. Like, Florida. Like, the literal opposite corner of the country. And then he asks her if she can reschedule the trip. She barely knows him. She's known him for maybe a month tops. Why would she reschedule an entire trip with her mom? Because it's prom. You only get one junior prom. Rude. They then take a class field trip to a composting place, which is amazing. The bio teacher is my favorite. He's so excited about (laughs) composting. He had his golden onion. Now he's getting his, like, compost tea. I love it. That's, like, my dream (laughs) class. Edward making no attempt to even pretend that he was not eavesdropping from a conversation that he was arguably very far away from. Or even casually tries to bring it up, demands to know why Bella is going to be in Jacksonville. (laughs) Edward then now pretends that he had some sort of weird adrenaline rush, but also smirks while saying it. So, like, not even pretending like it's true. He's very rude to her. Like, does she even want to date him beyond the fact that she's like, oh, like, he's constantly in my dreams. I should figure that out. (laughs) Who knows? He's the only boy who doesn't want her, so therefore she wants him. I feel like the kid that speaks to no one at school suddenly talks to me but only sometimes I'd be like all right that's like also obsessed with me but like his version of it the next day at lunch Edward tries to redeem himself by acting friendly (laughs) 
but saying, it's better if we weren't friends. Not that I don't want to be. And then threatens Bella by saying, if you were smart, you'd stay away from me. Which then Bella says, let's say for argument's sake, I'm not smart. Which, boom. Edward <laughs> then says, what if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the bad guy? To which Bella invites him to the beach. Yeah. Not thinking that that is anything threatening to say at all, especially in a pre-Billie Eilish era. <laughs> Even in a post-Billie Eilish era. Edward then says, it's kind of crowded. Two, scene change, two people at the beach. Jacob is then one of those two people at the beach. And Bella sarcastically asks if he's stalking her. Though... Edward is legit stalking her, and he has never asked See, that yeah, question. Bella asks questions, but she doesn't ask. She does ask him questions. later, but that is when he is clearly following her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jacob then reveals that Edward is not allowed on the beach, and the backstory is that Jacob's tribe was descended from wolves, and the Cullens are just quote the enemy. They then make a deal that they won't reveal what they really are if they agree to abide by said drawn lines. Bella not being the idiot that literally all of the boys in this movie try and make her out to be, finds a book on the, like, background of his tribe in Why Port does Angeles. she skip over all the perfectly fine online sources? She's just like, oh, <laughs> these websites? Nah. Because she wants Gotta go find a, a physical source. <laughs> Maybe she doesn't want search history because she knows deep down Edward can That's find fair. it. <laughs> She goes to get the book in Port Angeles, which is also conveniently where where her friends are getting their prawn dresses. They get catcalled through a shopping window, and then one of the dudes catcalling her when she is leaving from the bookstore follows her to her being surrounded by about 12 dudes yelling catcally things, including one who asks if she likes beer pong. I did say the most realistic thing about this movie is that drunk men are the enemy. Edward then swoops out of nowhere, even though he has no reason to be there whatsoever, and growls at the boys. Guess growls, then drives away (laughs) like a literal maniac. Apparently it was also so long that Jessica and Hannah finished their meal, which like, how long was she at the bookstore? Because like, in theory, like, Edward showed up the minute those dudes surrounded her. I'm sorry, Jessica and Angela are the worst. If my friend wasn't answering calls or texts, I wouldn't be like, cool, I guess we'll just eat then. I'd be like, um, we should go find her. She's not responding. Clearly something's like, up. Like, they know where the bookstore is. They know that she was Yeah, like, she was, like, specifically store. was, I mean, I guess there could be more than one bookstore. But, like, in theory, it's been, like, at least an hour. At the very least. So they didn't immediately go to the restaurant when she left because otherwise it'd be like no Bella like we're about to wrap up here like why don't you just come get dinner with us yeah (laughs) so it's probably been like two hours what was she doing in this bookstore (laughs) what they showed was her literally just walking in asking for this book and paying but maybe she said yeah maybe it took her a while to walk over there like I don't know how far away it is Edward then does the awkward thing of being like let's grab dinner and then orders nothing which I would track down as a weird Edwardism if it has not uh, happened to me multiple times of you not ordering something or being with someone no of order. people being like let like do you want food let's get food and then i'm like sure and then i order something and then they don't and they're like oh i thought like you wanted food and i'm Ugh. like i don't want food i'm eating here alone what the that 
That's horrible. No. Bella then directly asks Edward how he knew where to find her and if he followed her, which he responds with, I feel protective of you, which is not a no. Edward then defends it with, if only she could hear the thoughts of what they were thinking, because he could read everyone's mind, but her. Edward then ends the dinner telling Bella that he, quote, doesn't have the strength to stay away from her anymore, which is very alarming. Red flag, <laughs> and Bella. Bella says, Red flag. Don't. And then they leave. I'm pretty sure Bella does not even touch this meal. If I was with someone and they didn't order food, I also wouldn't eat. Like, I would feel really weird. Because they're just watching me eat. No, I cannot eat in front of you like that, please. Yeah, I guess I get it, Box. But, like, that's theoretically their dating life. Like, it's like, Bella, you have to eat and you have to do just it in like, front of me. Just, like, don't go to dinner. Do other things. Yeah. <laughs> go do other dates. Do more hiking no. dates. <laughs> Edward then drives Bella home, and then they touch hands, and she gasps, and I thought it was like, ooh, sexual tension. I forgot (laughs) that he's just really cold. (laughs) Edward then looks like he's going to cry, probably remembering her saying how she hates cold things, and they disgust her. (laughs) Bella starts doing research on, quote, the cold ones, and what Edward is, and honestly, it doesn't seem like she's doing that much research that, like, anyone else at school couldn't figure out. If they, like, tried a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but no one else is friends with the push kids. That's fair. But just, like, anyone in general, like, being yeah. like, Edward's a freak. <laughs> we Google him. Well, no one else has touched him. They don't know that he's cold. <laughs> That's fair. I guess he's, like, fast enough that he would, like, never need to bump into anyone. Yeah. At school the next day, they ditch to go into the woods instead. So Bella confronts Edward that she knows that he's a vampire, and Edward asks if she's afraid, and Bella says no, even though she should be, not because he's a vampire, but because he is a maniac. Edward says, if that wasn't a deal breaker, this definitely is, and reveals that he sparkles in the sun, and not that he's like a hundred or insane. But here's how the conversation goes. Bella, you're beautiful. Edward, beautiful chuckles. Which also, if you didn't see the TikTok where it's just constantly being like Edward Chuckles. <laughs> no, I didn't so see good. that. It's just like every time Edward is described as talking, <laughs> it's like Edward Chuckles. Edward Chuckles darkly. Edward Chuckles sadly. Oh Edward, beautiful Chuckles. This is the skin of a killer, Bella. Bella then says it does not matter even if he has killed people, including a strong desire to want to kill her. To which Bella's like, okay, and then tries to kiss him, which is rejected. I don't know why Edward thinks being sparkly is the thing that's gonna, like, set her off. Like, go murder an animal. <laughs> Compared to all the like, other things Like, go attack a deer and show her that you're vicious. Don't be sparkly. He's like, this is the skin of a killer. In what world does sparkly mean murderer? Then Edward gets close, like literally traps her against a tree and demands to know what she's thinking because he can't know on his own. And Bella says, actually, now she is afraid of losing him. Edward then says, so the the lion fell in love with the lamb, claiming to be in love with Bella, even though they've literally only hung out twice. See, but like, that's realistic of high school relationships, so. I wrote that he He's very much only horny because she smells nice. And then sent me into a loop of, can vampires be horny? Do vampires get erections? They clearly- Do they have blood in their body? Can they only get erections after they have just eaten? So it's just like, they're getting one, but it's not of their but own like, blood. Because they clearly do, because Edward- Because they, yeah, they have sex eventually. <laughs> but it doesn't make sense. But like, how does it work? Is he always hard? Like, because like, his skin is hard. So like, <laughs> is it just always- Ah. <laughs> Next scene. 
Bella is lying in her bed and she says that there are three things she is positive of. That Edward is a vampire, that he definitely wants her blood, and that she loves him for reasons that are unknown to me. They now show up at school, in theory, then are in the woods again, seemingly never going Okay, so that's another note I have. I was like, how do- because like, this is another part that I was like, is this freeform editing this movie weirdly, or is the movie just- taking these cuts it was like how did we get to the shore i thought we were going to school i can't tell like what's happening nope, just always going into the woods <laughs> like i don't know if this is after school or like they're just skipping school to go to the yeah, woods who knows always. edward then tells her how carlisle only changes people that are dying such as him in 1918 from the spanish flu but also like a lot of people were dying of the spanish flu so like why only they them? eventually get to this It'd be like now if they were like, okay, like, two people dying of coronavirus, we're turning them into vampires, but, like, no one it's else. It's, like, only people Not that all have, like, other, like, a hundred thousand people. A tragic, like, because it was more than just Spanish flu. It was, like, he was all alone. But it was, yeah, it was, like, he had to watch his parents die. Then Carlisle was, like, instead of letting him die, I'm gonna keep him alive forever. I always skipped over that chapter when I reread Twilight, because it was so boring. <laughs> I was like, I don't care about Carlisle's uh, past. Get me out of here. Edward then brings Bella to his house, and because her name is Bella, they're all like, ah, she's Italian, and prepare a feast that only Bella they would know. eat, which is also uncomfortable. Also, Emmett, like, waving a knife instead of his hand. Big energy. <laughs> I love it. I love him. Rosalie is mad, saying that she hopes Bella knows that since they're now public, if it ends badly, it'll be a bad look for them all. And Bella's like, end badly? You mean if I'm brutally murdered? And then the entire family yeah, laughs. Yeah, but also, like, making awkward jokes <laughs> is also a mood. Like, being like, huh, wouldn't it be funny if you guys killed me <laughs> edward then gives bella a tour of the house which is just his room and he tries to teach her to dance and bella says i don't dance and edward says i can make you and then grabs her and then <laughs> throws her on his back okay says, but you missed the part where she talks about making a rain stick out of chinchilla poop what <laughs> i did miss that she's just like looking around his room and she's just like oh my god this stuff is so cool and she like pulls out a rain stick from his like bookcase and she goes oh my god me and my mom like made this once i had like we had a pet chinchilla and we made its droppings and toilet paper roll and like edward's just staring at her because she's a crazy person and then she's just like huh i guess that's weird i absolutely missed that <laughs> like what the fuck <laughs> He then grabs her, throws her on her back, says, you better hold on tight, spider monkey, and then goes absolutely fucking nuts climbing the trees in his I backyard. I would peel my face off if someone told me to hold on tight, spider monkey. Like, <laughs> Equally, right before he launches into the trees, he asks, do you trust me? And Bella responds, in theory, which, also a red flag. <laughs> Edward then sneaks through Bella's window for the first time while she is awake, and she asks, do you do this a lot? And he says, only for the past couple of months, which also, they have only known each other for a couple of months. Yeah, no, it's basically been like, yes, um, I do this every night since you've come to Forks, <laughs> obviously. Bella brings up to her dad that she and Edward are dating, and he thought, <laughs> he says, I thought you didn't like any of the boys in town, and she said, technically Edward doesn't live in town, which is absolutely some shit that I would pull <laughs> 1, to avoid telling people I'm dating someone. Bella, like, when she, like, walks up to her dad, she, like, hands him another beer. He's holding a gun, and she hands him a second beer. And he's just like, yeah, vitamin R. Edward then invites Bella to watch his family play baseball, which is a Technically, he says she's gonna play baseball, but, like, Edward, imagine <laughs> if you put Bella in that. <laughs> 
I just want to imagine her, like, running miles to go get the ball. And then miles back, and it's been, like, an hour. The bad vampires then show up, just on the verge of leaving town, also wanting to play baseball. However, they obviously smell Bella, and then James calls her a snack. <laughs> and since James clearly wants to eat her, they have to end the game, which Laurent seems very. I do want to point something out. This movie is color graded so blue. Every single scene is just like, especially if they're outdoors, is so blue. Like they like have a blue tint. I guess to be like, yes, it's very cloudy and rainy here, so we're leaning into the shadows. It's very blue. It's distracting. Edward then explains that this is a game to James, and he knows that since it would upset Edward, it is now his most exciting game. Edward tells Bella that they need to leave, and he's going to expect that she'll be home because her sense strongest there, and Bella's like, but my dad's home, and Edward is basically like, fuck One your dad. One might call this the most dangerous game? Haha. <laughs> Instead of just leaving her dad, she pretends like she's moving to Arizona, but instead of just being like, I want to visit mom for a bit, or I was planning on visiting mom and I never told you my flight's tonight, she pretends that she breaks up with Edward and needs to go home, and when Charlie's like, sorry, I can be a better dad, we can do more activities, she breaks his heart and says that she doesn't want to be stuck in a rut like mom was when she was with yeah, him. Yeah, fucking rude. I would- ugh. I'd be devastated. I was devastated. I could never say that to my dad. I could not imagine telling my dad, yeah, you're just a bad dad. I don't care. I'm leaving. There's nothing you can do to make it better. I don't care if you try harder. They then devise a plan where Alice and Jasper take Bella South to Arizona, which it is a 24-hour drive from Forks to Phoenix, and Edward stays behind. They don't need to sleep, so it's fine. And they also drive really fast they're vampires. (laughs) Edward, Emmett, and Rosalie devise a plan which includes them rubbing Bella's clothes all over the trees so that James thinks that she's there, which obviously doesn't work. (laughs) James then blackmails Bella and goes to her old ballet studio and tells her to go alone because he makes her think that she kidnapped her mom. Instead, he uses a home video of her mom, which is honestly brilliant, and gets all of her information from public records, which... Maybe the crew should have thought of before being like, oh, Bella, we'll take you to this place. The place that is easily documented for you to be. Edward and James fight as Bella's sitting on the floor in a pool of her own blood, which honestly, all of the vampires this entire goddamn movie are like, your blood smells so good, I can't resist it. So you'd think that like one of them would be distracted and be like, I need to drink Bella's blood now. Also, James is just a fucked up film kid. Like, he's just trying to make this movie. At one point, he's just like, my god, it's so visually dynamic. Like, okay, we get it. Yeah. James bites Ella, so Edward bites off James's ear. And then the rest of them show up and tear him limb from limb and throw him into the fire. Edward has a very long discussion with Carlisle about whether to let Bella turn into a vampire or not, as she literally has minutes left and cannot afford this conversation. So Edward is worried that once he starts, he won't be able to stop, which honestly would have been a more predicting end to the series, considering Edward is a maniac (laughs) and has been saying the whole movie that he doesn't know whether or not he can constrain himself from killing her. However, Edward stops and Bella wakes up at the hospital. Carlisle is really, like, not trying hard to stop. He's generally like, no, Edward, stop. You're killing her. He's just like, you'll do it. (laughs) You're killing- He, like, doesn't even put a hand on Edward. He's just like, no, Edward, like, you're killing her. You're gonna kill her. And just, like, looking and watching. Carlisle wanted Bella to die. Yeah. (laughs) Because he's thinking ahead. He's around humans all the time. He's like, we're gonna have to come up with a story 
for this. It's a big liability. Like, people are gonna be like, Bella, bring your boyfriend to events. And then Edward will be there, the insane person that he is, <laughs> and be like, ah, that one time in 1920, and everyone's gonna be like, what are you saying? <laughs> yeah. Someone's gonna ask him one single direct question. He's gonna be like, right, <laughs> let me tell you about my days as a vampire. The story that Edward and Carlisle tell is that they go to Phoenix to convince Bella to stay, and she, quote, falls down two flights of stairs and out a window. And one, if any parent or even friend did not say you cannot date this person that obviously just abused you and called it an accident like especially with the context of they broke up and she left she fled the city yeah and he (laughs) followed her and then happened to fall down two flights of stairs and out of window and then suddenly was like no me and edward are together what to no one addresses the bite on her arm. Despite telling everyone the whole movie that she can't go to prom, which I guess now she's not going to Jacksonville because of her leg, Bella and Edward go to prom. Jacob is hiding in the bushes at her prom and says that his dad paid him to talk to her and tell her to break up with Edward, which is fair considering it looks like he pushed her down the stairs and out a window. Edward then forces Bella to dance on the gazebo despite having a broken leg that he causes. (laughs) I also, Jacob immediately dislikes Edward, which really doesn't make sense because at this point, Jacob really doesn't believe in any of the legends. Like, he's just like, oh, it's a weird thing, but like, I don't believe it. And also, there was, I don't know if you saw that TikTok that was like, I just don't understand like why Jacob, he like likes Bella because she carries Renesmee eventually, but like Edward is also a piece of Renesmee, so shouldn't he be at least a little bit attracted to Edward as well? (laughs) everyone else in the gazebo feels so uncomfortable that they then leave Ella then says that she wanted Edward to change her into a vampire that she has decided she then tells Edward she wants him to bite her right there as if they weren't at prom and as if it wouldn't cause a whole fucking scene which is probably one of the things that Carlisle was worried about Edward then asks if it's not enough to have a long and happy life with him, not considering that literally once she graduates, she would be dating a, in theory, 17-year-old for a while. So, yes, it's not enough. Yeah, I mean, it would get real creepy in, like, 10 years when they need to relocate, and Edward would have to be 17 (laughs) again. And Bella goes with. Yeah, and Bella would be, like, 27. Aside from referencing that Victoria wants revenge, that is the end of the movie. Victoria's dressed up for prom, even though she's, like, not participating. She's, like, hidden away. She just likes to commit to a theme. Which movie do you like more? Obviously Twilight (laughs) Obviously. In any way, shape, or form. It's so funny. It's it's great. <laughs> I always feel like my qualification for which do I like more is more like which would I rewatch more and obviously that's Twilight. I have no gauge. I'm just like what makes me feel good about about myself, about society. <laughs> I don't know if it makes me feel good about society, yeah, about society. but it makes me feel good about my place in it. <laughs> Both of these films are very influential. Like, without Nosferatu, we wouldn't really have a horror genre. I mean, we would, but it would not be the same. And without Twilight, we wouldn't have an entire genre of life. So, like, I can acknowledge what Nosferatu has done 
and be very happy. I've only seen it a handful of times. That is Twilight and Nosferatu. Thank you all for listening. Go ahead and give us a follow on social media. We are at Film Squids Pod on everything. Go follow us there and so you can see my memes. One of the ways you can support us is to tell your friends about us, share our Instagram posts, go to your friend that you would talk about Twilight with and who you're going to share an annotated book book of Midnight Sun with and tell them to give this episode a listen. Or that snobby boy that thought Twilight was dumb. It's not worth bringing them into your life. (laughs) Yeah. If they've escaped your life, don't bring them back. (laughs) If they're still sadly there, then make them listen. This podcast was recorded by Brooke Coffey and Lindsay Buttle. Intro music is by the band Polyaction. And transition music is Dramatic Organ by Inspector J. Editing is by Lindsay Buttle. Until next time, squids.